Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. Scripture reading for today comes from Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. And the Word of God says, Now when he concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant, who was dear to him, was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them. And when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I do not even think myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel, And those who were sent returning to the house found the servant well who had been sick. The Old Testament is extremely specific. Not only about Jesus' coming, but about the things that one could expect when the Messiah finally arrived. The Bible tells us where he would be born. In Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, the Bible tells us Not only where he would be born, but the types of things that he would do and the miracles that he would perform, Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. It even tells us the kinds of sermons that he would preach. Psalm 78 and verse 2 says, out of his mouth would go forth parables. And then we open up our Bibles to the New Testament and places like Matthew chapter 1, and that is exactly what we find. Not only that Jesus is born, but immediately he begins to do the things that the Old Testament prophesied about concerning him. You get to the book of Matthew and you see Jesus's birth, his baptism, his triumph over the devil in temptation in Matthew chapter four. And then there's the famous sermon that we know as the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters five, six and seven. Then in Matthew chapter eight, we learn about our busy savior. If you have your Bible this afternoon, go ahead and turn it to Matthew chapter eight. There's a lot going on in this chapter, and in it we see the busyness of Jesus. He is cleansing individuals of leprosy, healing those that are paralyzed at a distance, healing those that are suffering with a fever, calming the seas, 
and even casting out demons out of those that are demon possessed. And Jesus does all of these things. But what I want us to think about this afternoon is as we read of the work of Jesus, especially in these accounts where he's helping other people and dealing with them, we should read them for the facts that they teach us about what Jesus did, fulfilling prophecy and doing his work as as the Messiah. But when we read the gospel accounts, we should also press into them and ask ourselves, what was it like to be there? And if I was there, what would I have done? What role would I have occupied And how would I have responded to the things that are taking place? In doing that, we become more than just passive readers of Scripture. We become active. We can't transport ourselves back to the first century and be present. But in the 21st century, we can learn lessons from these accounts that will help us to be the people of God. This afternoon, I want to talk to you about the centurion who Jesus encountered in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through verse 13. Now, Luke and Matthew both tell us about this account. Matthew gives us the more condensed version, but you also have it as we had in our scripture reading a moment ago in Luke chapter 7. And Jesus encounters the centurion. And what happens when he encounters Jesus? What are some things we learn about Jesus? And what are some things we learn about ourselves? The name centurion means that he was a Roman soldier and he was over the name itself says he was over a 100 soldiers. It was probably more like 80 individuals that were under his watch. And the interesting thing about centurions in the New Testament is every time they're mentioned, there's something positive about them. This man here, the centurion at the foot of the cross, Mark 15, he says, truly, this is the son of God, Cornelius and even Julius, the centurion, Acts 27, who saw to Paul's safety as they traveled on the ship on their way to Rome. Every time the New Testament touches on an individual who occupied the role of a centurion, there's something positive said about them. And this man is no exception. Matthew chapter eight and verse five says Jesus entered Capernaum and there came a centurion to him. The old King James has beseeching him or imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant lies at home sick and paralyzed. And Jesus says, and he's grievously tormented. And Jesus says, I will come and heal him. The centurion sort of pushes Jesus away and says, no, I'm not worthy that you should come out of my roof. But just speak the word only and my servant will be healed. I'm a man with soldiers under me. I'm a man of authority with soldiers under me. I say to this one, go and he goes to another come and he comes to my servant. Do this and he does it. And Jesus in verse 10 of Matthew 8, he marveled. And he said to those who followed, I have not found so great faith. No, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will sit down with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then he turned and said to the centurion, be it done to you according to your faith. And his servant was healed that very hour. What happened to this man, this centurion, when he encountered Jesus? Several brief lessons from this account, and then we'll extend heaven's invitation. Number one, when the centurion encountered Jesus, he brought someone else. Now, this is unique because many people, if you just think about being an individual who lived in and around Palestine in the first century, the chances that you were going to come into contact with the Messiah, even on more than one occasion, were highly unlikely. And what would you petition him for when you came into his presence? You know, there are people in the gospel accounts that came to Jesus because they wanted him to settle disputes between them and their family members. Luke chapter 12 talks about a man who came and said, would you have my brother divide the inheritance with me? Or sometimes people came because their child was sick or even for themselves. But here is a man who came to Jesus and he brought someone else. Not only did he bring someone else, he brought a servant. 
in John's gospel, in John chapter one, he talks about Andrew bringing Peter and he talks about Philip bringing Nathaniel. And there's this pattern in the gospels that people need to come to Jesus. But here's the reality. Many people didn't know how much they needed Jesus's help. And those who knew who Jesus was and what he could do, they had a responsibility to bring him along and to introduce others to Jesus. And that's what the centurion does. When he comes to Jesus, he doesn't come for himself. There are many things probably that he could have asked God about or asked Jesus to do on his behalf. But he takes advantage of this opportunity in behalf of somebody else. When the centurion encountered Jesus, he thought it was important to bring someone else to Jesus. We talk about this in the church and we call it evangelism. And in the end, evangelism is, as the popular slogan goes, one beggar showing another beggar where to find bread. And the centurion is a grand example of what that's all about. It's Mark chapter five, when Jesus heals the demon possessed man. You remember the man says, I want to go with you. And Jesus tells him in Mark five nineteen, go home and tell all of your loved ones and friends the great things that God has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. What we learn from the centurion is this, as we have encountered Jesus and we know who he is, there's the responsibility on us to bring somebody with us, to introduce other people to Jesus. The word translated, he says, my servant is sick at home. It's also in Luke chapter seven and verse three. It could very well mean a young boy. It could be the case that this servant in the centurion's house was a young man. And can you imagine him seeing the young boy in this condition? suffering with with being a paralytic. Some commentators believe that the young man, when it says he's grievously tormented in Matthew's account in Matthew 8 and verse 5, that he was suffering with these upper respiratory spasms and he was just this close to giving out. And the centurion knew, Luke tells us, he went through these Jews. They spoke on his behalf and he knew if I could just get him to Jesus, things would be better. Listen, you know people who are having a hard time in life right now. You do. And as much as we want to try to help them and as much as we would try to alleviate their pain and their burdens, the reality is there are things in their lives that will not improve until they have an encounter with Jesus. And God has put us in their lives to arrange the meeting to the best of our ability. We can't override anybody's free will. We can't make them. But we can say you are suffering. You are grievously tormented in ways that only Jesus can help and can fix. And I would really love to introduce you to him. The centurion came, but he did not come empty handed. He brought someone else to him. He brought someone to Jesus in order for Jesus to help them. Mental Floss on their website, they talk about the effects, the healthy effects and benefits of helping other people. They say, if you live your life in view of helping other people and serving and ministering to other people, you'll lengthen your days. Your heart rate will be better. Your blood pressure will be where it's supposed to be. They say that there are physical benefits to helping other people. But the New Testament says there are spiritual benefits. There's a blessing to be enjoyed for those who help other people to come to know Jesus like they should. And so the early church in Acts chapter 8 and verse 4, those that were scattered abroad, they went everywhere preaching the word. They wanted other people to know what they knew about Jesus Christ. How would you summarize evangelism? What is evangelism? In a nutshell, evangelism is number one, seeing that people have a great need, knowing that Jesus is the answer to that need, and doing everything within our power to allow them to see Jesus in that light. It's what Paul prayed about in Romans 10, 1 through 4. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. And they're ignorant of God's righteousness. They've established their own righteousness. But Paul says, I want them to be saved. And we want that. And so as we encounter Jesus, it is great to be a Christian, to assemble and worship with God's people. But there is a 
another, an additional satisfaction that we enjoy as we not only enjoy Jesus ourselves, but as we see him come into other people's lives and change them in all of those grand and great ways as well. When the centurion encountered Jesus, he thought enough of him to bring someone with him. Now, here's number two. When this centurion encountered Jesus, he encountered a willing savior. He says to Jesus, my servant lies at home sick and paralyzed and he's grievously tormented. And Jesus says in response, I will come and heal him. You know, there are hundreds upon hundreds of people in the world that don't know this about Jesus. They don't realize this. But the centurion did when he encountered Jesus, what he found was a willing savior. It is not just the case that Jesus had all power and authority. He did and he does that he could hush the seas and that he could walk on water and that he could raise the dead and even forgive sins. He could do all of those things. But more than that, the New Testament portrays Jesus not only as capable, but willing. And we need that to be the case. Some people realize that God is holy, that God is sovereign, that God is majestic. And they probably wouldn't say this out loud, but in their minds, they might may also have the idea that God is grouchy. You know, that God really doesn't like to help people out, but he'll just do it to sort of Jesus is willing. He's willing. And Matthew chapter eight makes this abundantly clear. Look at verse two. A leper comes to Jesus and says, Lord, if you are willing, I know that you can make me clean. And what does he say in verse three? But be cleansed. I will. I want to help you. Jesus wants to help when we come to God. God doesn't just merely help us because he's irritated with us or agitated with us. James chapter one says he gives and he does not upbraid. He doesn't say when he sees you coming to him for aid, oh, it's you again. And didn't I help you out last time with a similar issue like this? He's never frustrated with us. What the centurion found is what we all find as well. Not just a savior who can, but a savior who will. I think it's interesting in Matthew chapter eight, all of the things that Jesus does, we find a willing savior to help with just what exactly you see, as you read through Matthew chapter eight, I assume that you would read it just like I would. And you would say some of these are issues that you would really need divine aid. So maybe the leprosy in Matthew chapter eight, verses one through four, you might need Jesus's help with that. That's something you wouldn't be able to rid yourself of on your own. Or maybe the paralytic in Matthew 8, 5 through 13. But when you get to verse 14 down through verse 16 and Peter's mother-in-law has a fever, you say, well, she could take some Palestinian Tylenol. She could be okay. She doesn't need Jesus' help. Jesus heals her. And then when they're on the sea in Matthew chapter 8, 26 through 34, Jesus hushes the sea. And then when the demon-possessed individual comes to Jesus in Matthew 8, 28 through 34, don't you see Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 8, whether it's a fever or fear or paralyzed or whether it's being demon-possessed, whatever it is, I am willing to help with what? With everything. Jeremiah 33 and verse 3, he says, call on me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. The reason why we don't have his help is because we just haven't asked for it. The centurion found a savior who was willing and ready to come into his life and help. Are we willing to let him in? You know, there are people that have been struggling with the same. You study the Bible with people sometimes and a person says, you know what? I know I need to obey the gospel. I know I do. And preacher, listen, I'm going to get some things straight and I'm going to get. And once I get, I'll be down there at the church building. You'll never see them. You won't because if they could fix it on their own, they wouldn't need Jesus's help. People say, well, I know, I I know I need to be better in this area and I know I need to straighten these things out. And once I do, I'm going to give Jesus 100 percent. Why don't you just give Jesus all of you and he'll take care of the rest? He'll work with you. 
because he's willing. The centurion found a savior who was willing and able to come to his aid and to help him. You know, if you go to the gym, you see people in there working out. And sometimes there's an individual under the bench press and above that person. It's typically someone that we would call a spotter. And they're lifting this weight and the spotter is supposed to be there just in case this person begins to struggle or they need a little bit of help. And the spotter is going to help them to get the weight up. And there are sometimes you go into a gym and you see a person with a bunch of weight on the bar and you might assume, yeah, they definitely need a spotter because if that lands on them, they, they'd be crushed. But then somebody walk, you walk by in the gym and you see somebody and it looks like maybe they've got two empty, to, two empty toilet rolls on the side. And you think, well, they don't need any help with that. They've got that on their own. And if they said, hey, I need a spotter, people might mock and make fun and say, you can't lift that. You need help. Jesus never sees you or me struggling under the weight of life and says, oh, you've got that. You can do that one on your own. Surely that's a small problem. It's something you can handle on your own. He always says, I'll be right there. I'm willing. I'm ready. I'm the divine spotter. I'm here to help you. You don't have to bear your burdens alone. Cast all your cares upon him. We should never think to ourselves, well, I don't want to overwhelm God with that. That's what he does. It's his responsibility to us as his children. He wants to help us in his love and kind benevolence. He's here to help and he's willing to do it. Jesus was busy. He had a lot of things going on, but you never read of him in the gospel accounts being approached by anyone for any reason. And him saying, you know what? I've done enough of that already. I'm not going to do anymore. He always had time and he still does. Here's number three. When the centurion encountered Jesus, he appreciated and respected that Jesus was a man of authority. Notice what he says when Jesus says, I'll come and heal him. He says, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but speak the word only and my servant will be healed. For I, too, am a man under authority. I say to this one, go and he goes to a servant, come and he comes to another, do this and he does it. He realized that Jesus was a man of authority. Now, appreciate his his response to Jesus. He says he is not sovereign. He has some authority, but he doesn't have all. He says, I'm a man under authority and I have people under me and I say to them, do this and they do it. I speak to them and command them to do certain things and they obey me. Now, if the centurion is obeyed, though, he is not sovereign in the Roman government. He's saying to Jesus, I know that I have some limitations, but people obey me. You have none. Merely speak the word only. And it'll happen just as you say. He realized that Jesus had authority. He was more than just a miracle worker. He was more than just an itinerant preacher in and around Nazareth. He said, you have authority and power. And by the way, your authority and your power has no limits. He believed that about Jesus and he vocalized it. What kind of authority does Jesus have? At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, go flip back to Matthew chapter 7. You're right near it in Matthew chapter 8. But in Matthew chapter 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in verse 28 and verse 29, it says, when he had finished saying all these things, they were astonished at his teaching or his doctrine because he spoke like one who had authority and not as their scribes. His authority was seen in the way he preached. You see, the Pharisees and others could say, well, we believe. Or our rabbinical tradition says, Jesus could say, you've heard it said, but I say to you, he could say that because he had authority. When the sea raged and stormed in the ancient world, the most uncontrollable thing in the world is often the sea. It begins in Genesis chapter one and verse two, and you see it throughout the gospel accounts. Jesus is showing them I have control over that, too. When he tells the sea to hush, she dares not to utter another word. Matthew chapter eight, he says, peace be still. And it was he had authority. 
when he tells demons to come out. They do not resist his word. They submit and they obey because Jesus has all authority. And that's what this centurion believed. Now, if we're going to be pleasing to God, if we're going to be the people that God wants us to be, we must appreciate that and submit to it. In the end, the only people that have God's approval are the people that realize his authority and respond accordingly. A lot of people love Jesus Christ. A lot of people claim that they want to live for Jesus, but they just don't want to submit to his authority. They don't want to do the things that Jesus says that they need to do. This man realized Jesus had authority and whatever Jesus said is ultimately what went. And so in Christianity, we might say to ourselves, what type of worship are we going to have? Contemporary or traditional? What about scriptural? People talk about traditional and contemporary. What about just scriptural worship? Because Jesus has all authority, Colossians 3.17. And how am I going to treat people, people that are different from me, people that come from a different background? Well, Jesus has all authority, and he's sovereign over my human relations too, and I'm just going to do what Jesus says. And what are we going to teach about how individuals become Christians and how they respond to Jesus in the gospel? We don't have to come up with a plan of salvation. We just echo the one that we find in Scripture because Jesus has all authority. All of it. That's how the gospel of Matthew ends in Matthew 28, 18. All authority is given to me in heaven and in earth. It's not just the case that Jesus has authority in religious matters. He has it in every area and every realm of life. If Jesus has all of it, how much do you have and how much do I have? Our eyes might play tricks on us in this regard because we look around us and sometimes we say, it looks like the government has authority. And it looks like the world around us, it looks like the secularist has authority and they seem to be running the day. They don't have any. Daniel said he saw one coming like the son of man and to him was given dominion and a kingdom that all peoples and all nations should serve him. His dominion was everlasting. His kingdom would not end. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. He has all of it. And though some of it is for a time delegated to other individuals, they will give an account for what they've exercised. But what the centurion knew is that here is the one who possesses all authority and before whom we all must bow. He was used to giving orders, but on this occasion, as he encountered Jesus, he realized he had to take orders because Jesus is different. He has all authority. To be on his side in view of this reality is the greatest news. We've submitted ourselves to the one who has all authority, and sometimes people bristle against this. We live in a time right now where people are really having a difficult time with authority. We talk about toxic masculinity, And people that have been let down by people in authority, whether it's in religious circles or whether it's in political circles, and they come into contact with texts like these in Matthew 28, 18, and they say, wait a minute, should anybody possess absolute power? Can anybody really be trusted to do what's right? And Jesus stares down those questions sincerely. People have been hurt and crushed by people that have had authority, and they doubt, and they say, I don't know if this is safe. And Jesus stares down those questions sincerely, takes the inquirer at face value, and he says, Let me take you by the hand. And he takes you all the way to the cross and he says, oh, yes, I have all authority, but I will never use it to harm you. I really do have your best interests at heart. I'm the only one who has ever truly loved you to death. I have all authority. And it's in your best interest and for your ultimate good. Submit to me. You can trust me. Give your life over to me. I won't do you any harm. The centurion realized that Jesus had all authority. Now, here's number four. When the centurion encountered Jesus, he shocked Jesus and amazed him with his faith. Jesus marveled because of his belief. 
This man is a Gentile centurion. And he says that Jesus has no limitations and Jesus marvels. There are two occasions in the Gospels where the Bible says that Jesus marveled. Here's the first one. It's recorded again in Luke 7. And the second one, turn your Bible to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6 and notice verse 6. These are the only two times in the entirety of the Gospels where it said that Jesus marveled or that he was shocked or amazed. Mark 6 and verse 6 says he marveled because of their unbelief and he went around the villages teaching. He marvels. What makes Jesus marvel? Either individuals after seeing so much and encountering so much of him. They say, I won't believe that. In Mark 6, he's in and around his hometown of Nazareth, and they won't believe. And he's shocked at their unbelief. But then there's the centurion, and he marvels because of this man's faith. And he points it out to other people, and he says, you see this man's faith. If anybody should have believed, it should have been the Jews. They had the oracles of God, the Old Testament scriptures. But Jesus didn't have a harder time with anybody than he did with the Jews, trying to convince them that he was the one they had studied about their whole lives. Here's the point for you and me. Your sincere and genuine faith, often without fanfare, often seeming rather ordinary in our world that has so much going on, it impresses Jesus Christ. Hold to it. Retain it. Maintain it. Because he's impressed when people believe and trust him with all of their heart. He marveled and he got the attention of the crowd and he said, I want you to see this. I've never seen anything like it. No, not even in Israel. This man's an example. His faith impresses Jesus. We're either in one of two camps. Either we're the Matthew 8 and verse 10 folks or we're the Mark 6 and verse 6 folks. Either Jesus says about you and me, you know, this person's been a Christian for 50 years. You could count the sermons and the lectureships and the seminars they've been to, and yet they don't seem to have any faith. They doubt and they worry and they fret, just like people that have never heard of Jesus Christ. He'll marvel at your unbelief, or he'll say about you and me, their faith is not without biblical and sound and sure evidence, but they also possess a childlike trust that he, Mark 7, 37, does all things well, and I'm impressed with them. He never doubts me. He never questions me. She never thinks that I'm going to lead her to a cliff and leave her alone. I'm impressed with that type of faith. And she's an example. He's an example to other people. Now, Jesus is going to say one of those two things about us, and we know what side we want to be on. It's impressive that it's said about him. Why wasn't this said about the Pharisees? They studied the Bible the most. Why wasn't this said about the religious leaders? They missed him. They missed their opportunity to impress Jesus. You see, it's not just our faith for ourselves that we possess, but God examines our faith. Jesus would say about some, you had little faith. He would say about others that they had great faith. What does he say about yours and mine? When the centurion encountered Jesus, he impressed them with his belief with his confidence and with his trust and with his willingness to put it all in Jesus's hands, trust in Jesus to do what was right by him. He blew him away because he said, if you just say it, I know it'll happen. You know, Jesus would often tell people, I'm going to do this. And they doubted this man said, you don't even have to go. If you just say the word, I believe it'll happen. Here's number five. We've got two more. Here's number five. When the centurion encountered Jesus, he learned that salvation was for all people everywhere. When Jesus says, many will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob 
in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of this kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's speaking of the Gentiles. They'll come from the east and the west. Luke's account says the north and the south. So that about covers it. North, south, east and west. And then he says the children of this kingdom, that's the Jews. Those are the chosen people. In Matthew 8 and verse 12, he says the children of this kingdom, by and large, they'll be cast out into outer darkness. They'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What the centurion found out when he encountered Jesus was this. There is room at the table for everybody. Salvation is for all. The whosoever cry of the New Testament is sincere. Whosoever will, let him come. Revelation twenty two seventeen. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Acts 2.21 and Romans 10 and verse 13. And if people were paying attention to Jesus throughout his earthly ministry, he would often give these little glimpses to show people that he was the savior for all men. It starts in his genealogy when people like Ruth from Moab are mentioned or Rahab from Canaan are mentioned or Jericho. You think about the individuals that you encounter throughout the Gospels that you wouldn't expect to believe. And as they express faith in Jesus, he's saying, yes, he's come to save his people from their sins. Who are his people? All of those who believe and obey. He's the savior of all men. And the centurion found that out when he encountered Jesus. You know, you may never make enough money to buy a ticket to the World Series or the Super Bowl or the NBA Finals. Some of those seats you just, you just couldn't afford to pay. But in the kingdom of God, Jesus says, if you submit to me, there's room. When he tells his disciples at the end of the gospel of Matthew, go and disciple the nations. He's saying salvation really is for all people everywhere. And this centurion is a picture of what that looks like. Whoever trusts and submits to Jesus, they can and will be saved. Sometimes people say, I don't know. I don't know if I'd fit in the church. I'm really not from a religious family. Doesn't matter. And I'm not really educated. I don't read real good. Doesn't matter. I've done some things. You don't know what I've done. You don't know how much of it I've done. If you'll turn away from it, if you'll confess it and forsake it, doesn't matter. I speak a different language. Won't separate you. You see, Jesus is the savior of all people everywhere. That's why he says, go and preach the gospel to everybody, because you will never look on the face of a person that God doesn't love and doesn't want to be saved. And so he says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. In Luke chapter seven, they try to convince Jesus that he should do this miracle because this man built a synagogue and he had done great things for the Jews. Listen, Jesus did not have to be bribed into doing it. He did it for the woman in Canaan. He did it for Jairus's daughter, did it for Peter's mother-in-law and anybody that came to Jesus. And the same holds true today. Would you come to him, give up your ways and turn to him and he'll receive you. Now, here's the last one. In Matthew chapter eight, when Jesus, when a centurion encountered Jesus, his faith was rewarded. Jesus says in verse 13, Let it happen according to your word. And his servant was healed that same hour. He believed and Jesus rewarded him. People in the Gospels did not have a sort of apathetic and just general response to Jesus. No, when people encountered Jesus, they either fled away in fear. They either hated him and wanted to kill him. 
where they fell in love with Jesus and wanted to give their entire lives over to him. People did not have this sort of cavalier and casual attitude toward Jesus like we tend to sometimes see in our society. People that encountered Jesus, they knew they were encountering something different. But when they possessed faith like the centurion, their faith was rewarded. And the New Testament says to Christians, so will our faith be. Your faith is the victory that overcomes the world. First Peter, first John five and verse four. Hebrews 11 and verse six says we focus on the first part of this. Without faith, it's impossible to what? It's impossible to please him. But what does the reverse mean then? With faith, it is possible to please him. Don't you know that God can be pleased without faith? You can't please him. But with faith, you can. He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. He will reward. This man went home to find a servant well and healed. And if we would maintain our faith and hold firmly to it, in the end, we'll hear these words. Well done. Why can we hear those words? Because we've done well. God can be pleased. His commands are burdensome. His requirements are not so complex and confusing that they just can't be reached. This man's faith was rewarded. God has promised to reward everybody in the world who possesses faith in him, faith that not just believes intellectually, but that turns and obeys and does what he says that that we should. You see, when this centurion encountered Jesus, he came on behalf of his servant, but he was blessed as a result. His faith is forever remembered as it's recorded for us in the New Testament record. And we see the way that he lived and we say, I want to be remembered that way too. I want Jesus to see my faith. And in the end, I want my faith to be rewarded. That's what's going to see us through. And we've got this assurance, maybe not under the same circumstances, but if our faith is as vibrant and consistent as his was on this occasion, the same willing Savior who rewarded him will ultimately reward us. Matthew chapter 8 shows us Jesus doing several things, shows us the type of Savior that we serve. But as we read Matthew chapter 8, we should be asking ourselves, where am I in the account? Am I the centurion that has faith or am I one of the bystanders standing by that says, I need to see just a little bit more before I'll submit to him? Do we respect and submit to his authority, knowing that he can do for us what we can't do for ourselves and we trust him and we're willing to submit and obey him? Jesus will be amazed. He will be impressed and he would ultimately reward our faith if we possess it and we exercise it on his behalf. If you believe Jesus is the son of God, and you're willing and ready to turn from your sins and confess him before men and be immersed in water. Maybe you've been studying the New Testament with someone. Listen, the plan of salvation, it doesn't belong to us as members of churches of Christ. It's not the church of Christ plan of salvation. It's Jesus's plan because he has all authority. And when we realize that there is nothing, when we realize he has all authority and he has our best interests at heart and he's willing to help us and aid us, There is nothing that he can demand of us with which we won't comply to the degree that we're reserved, to the degree that we haven't thrown ourselves all the way in in our Christianity. We don't appreciate those realities. But if we do, we'll give him everything that we have. And in the end, we'll see him and we'll see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And our voices will swell in that eternal chorus with all of those who have done likewise. We're going to stand and sing this song to encourage us, as is our custom. If we can pray with you or pray for you, if we can help to bolster and encourage your faith, we want to help you to encounter Jesus by faith through his word. If we can help you in any way, come now as together we stand and as we sing.
We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.